Hey, everybody, this is the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm Mark Malkin. Today, I have two guests. First up is newcomer Joe Ellen Pillman, a young actor who danced and sang her way into stardom for her work as Emma in Ryan Murphy's film adaptation of The Prom, the Broadway musical about a group of New York stage stars who befriend a small-town Midwestern high schooler fighting for the right to take her girlfriend to the prom. Then later in the show, John Magaro. You know him from Orange is the New Black and Carol, but he's getting all types of award season buzz right now for Kelly Reichardt's latest indie, First Cow. Plus, he's in the much-anticipated Sopranos prequel movie, The Many Saints of Newark. I'll have Joe Ellen Pellman coming up after this short break. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Joe Ellen Pellman is a 24-year-old queer actor whose breakout role was as Emma in Ryan Murphy's Netflix adaptation of the Broadway musical The Prom. I caught up with Pellman from her childhood home in Ohio to talk about being a queer actor in Hollywood, having the Tony-nominated Ariana DeBose, who is also queer, play her girlfriend in The Prom, and of course, what it's like working with Meryl Streep. So congratulations on the prom. Thank uh, you. You know, we, my husband and I watched it and we just cried because, you know, I'm a little older than you. Um, and I think about if I had that when I was a kid, if I had that when I was in high school, what would, would my life be different? Would my self-esteem be different? Um, and it's really amazing. And I just kept thinking of every kid who's watching it and the access to it, because obviously it's Netflix. So it's like, we know theaters aren't open now anyway, but it's, it's pretty incredible. Did you feel the weight of that while you were making it? I did definitely. Like when I saw the show on Broadway, I felt the weight of like, wow, this is a story that... I wish, like, I'm, you know, only 25, and yet I still wish I had had this story growing up. And now, um, you know, it's on Netflix, and I just saw Netflix has over 200 million subscribers now, like the 200 million households in which this story has the potential to be told, and it's, like, all over the world. And I really do think it's something magical that Ryan Murphy has allowed us to do to, you know, bring all of these wonderful artists together and tell this story that is like every single person I talk to all of my friends like people who send me the sweetest messages like one of the you know biggest overriding themes is like this is a story I wish I had and I'm so excited for this next generation for this to be their norm for this to be one their introduction to musical theater as a you know genre and also with this beautiful message um I and I mean I it is a profound honor to have been a part of this production. What tell me about those letters you get or e letters who gets letters emails or do, I see I'm a little older than you. Um, <laughs> uh, direct messages, um, tweets. What are some of the ones that really stood out to you that you know like you said a lot of them are like I wish I had this. But was there one or two that you sort of like sat back and like sort of really felt it and got it. Yeah, no, I remember one um, very sweet person who messaged me saying that they watched the film with their parents and they hadn't come out to their parents yet. 
yet. And the film prompted that conversation for them to come out in a very like inclusive, like welcoming environment. And they felt so loved. And it was because they were, you know, they watched this film with their parents that that conversation, you know, came about. And I do think, I mean, you see such brilliant portrayals of reconciliation in the film, like with Tracy Ullman's character and with uh, Mary Kay Place's character playing my grandma, and especially with the brilliant Carrie Washington and that reconciliation that happens at the end um, with uh, her and Ariana DeBose. Like it shows you just the power, one, of accepting um, your loved ones at a young age, you know, when they're coming out at a formative age, but then also um you know for for tracy ullman's character i um having that conversation with uh james's character at the end you know it doesn't matter how old someone is like it's never too late to say i'm sorry it's never too late to say i love you and i mean if our film has any part in prompting those conversations like we have done our job i know at least like in my family that's it's it's come like the topic of acceptance and saying I love you saying you know we just didn't know that's come up for like my family which is which is pretty magical yeah do you remember the first time you saw yourself a queer woman represented on the big screen or the small screen you know I really I looked to people like Kate McKinnon when I was in high school who um were just so unabashedly who they are, were so brilliantly talented. And I saw her as someone who was like, wait, I can, like, I can <laughs> be, you know, a comedy genius. I can, you know, be openly gay, openly queer, and be accepted and celebrated. And so I do feel like Kate McKinnon is someone who I've always looked up to. And is um, she's sort of like, yeah, career icon of someone who like does not let anything define her and is always finding new characters and new twists. And it's just, I mean, she's Kate McKinnon. I love her so much. If you have you met her, and if you haven't met her, what would you say to her? Oh my gosh. Um, I have not met her, but Kate, if you're listening, uh, my DMs are open. Um, no, I would, <laughs> just kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I would probably just ask her, I would ask her, I don't know. I would ask her like how she got, um, you know, started on SNL, like how, like her formative, like gritty years. I find those are, that's the most interesting thing to me as a person. And it's someone I feel like I'm like sort of still in like my formative gritty years of like fighting to make it, you know, just having worked like three jobs right before booking the prom and like, how did you like fight to get to where you are now? And so I would probably ask her about her gritty years. Now let's talk about your first day meeting Meryl Streep. What goes through your head? How do you even deal with that? Oh my gosh. I mean, I was so nervous on the inside. Like, luckily, I've since been told um, from my fellow cast members that I did not seem nervous at all. But like on the inside, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go act opposite Meryl Streep. And this is like my second day on set. My first day on set was um, this, uh, the song in the breakup scene, Alyssa Green. So I was with Ariana and it was like so amazing. We were like, we're in this together. It's our first day on set. And then my second day was literally acting opposite Meryl and Nicole and all of them. And um, I... Uh, 
I just remember, I feel like I've told this story so many times, but it still sticks with me. Like I walk into the whole, the hotel lobby and I see them all like sitting on the couches, like talking with each other and laughing. You know, they'd been um, shooting and rehearsing for a while together. And I walk over and Meryl scoots over and she pats the seat next to her and she's like, come sit by me. And like in that moment, she literally, you know, made room for me as a member of the company. And I... I was just so nervous. And then getting to watch all of them and their process as actors, that was, I think, the biggest treat for me and something that I just treasure because I had very, very limited uh, experience on sets before. Like, this was my first ever film set. And so I didn't know what coverage Mm -hmm. meant, what, like, hitting your mark meant. Or, like, and so I really learned from Meryl by observing, like, oh, no, you do a different, like, a different, you know, a different version of the scene. Something's different. Something's fresh every single time because you want to give the director and the editor options. And that's what Meryl does so brilliantly is she finds, like, something fresh in every single take um and then everyone else can play off of that so it really becomes like a playground and it's like little things like that where like no one no one tells you you know (laughs) did you reach out to Caitlin after you got the role um she was so wonderful so I was such a big fan of seeing her in the uh Broadway production and she sent the sweet the sweetest message to me um after she found out the news um and it turns out we actually have the same voice teacher so we have this like wonderful connection and so I feel like uh we will always be connected because we got to, you know, play this role. And now for, you know, the actors who get to play her in the tour and then and all of the community theater and educational theater productions, like we all have this amazing Emma Bond. And I'm, yeah, she was so supportive. Now, are you a little nervous though? Cause this sounds like a pretty incredible, fun, smooth experience. How do you go from this you know, your bar is set really high now on how much fun you could have on a set. And we know not every job is going to be the same. Oh, no. And it's like, I knew this is like a once in a lifetime (laughs) experience. And that's why I tried to just soak up every single moment because like, I will never have another debut film. I will never have, you know, a film of like a movie musical with this kind of message with this cast. And so it really was, you know, just taking in every single moment and appreciating it for what it is. And I also, I remember, so at the University of Michigan, our one of our fabulous graduates, Gavin Creel, Broadway star, he came back and gave a masterclass and he was talking about, you know, like viewing your career as a long, you know, how, how to build a career. And he said something that really stuck with me and that instead of viewing your career as a ladder and, you know, your stepping stone, all the, you know, trying to level up all the time, it's like your career is a lily pond and you are just jumping from lily pad to lily pad and there is no better or worse or beneath you or above you you are simply going from lily pad to lily pad and so that's kind of how i'm i'm trying to view everything like what difference do you think it made that both you and ariana um identify as queer in these roles what 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 is what does it bring to the movie i uh, that's such a good question And I know like for me personally, it brings a sense of belonging 
knowing that I can fully bring myself and my being to this character and not just be accepted or tolerated, but truly celebrated. And that's for me, for me, that's what it feels like, just belonging. Um, And then also, yeah, the representation of people, you know, how I viewed Kate McKinnon growing up, (laughs) like maybe someone view, that's how they view me and Ariana, that they see, hey, these people are out, they are who they are, and yet they're in this big movie musical. I can, you know, be out and live my truth and be successful and do what I want to do as well. What do you say to the critics who say James Corden shouldn't have been cast and it should have been an openly gay man? I absolutely love James Corden and I look to the, and I love working with him and he has been so generous in um, Ariana and Mai's Unruly Hearts initiative. Um, We started as a way uh, for anyone who feels called to action after watching the prom, whether to get help or to give help for um, a way to connect them to these wonderful organizations. And James has donated so much of his own time and his resources to this cause and I mean, I just loved working with him and he, yeah, he is a really generous person. Now, fun question for you. What's the worst audition you ever went on? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, um, oh, I th- I should have a story prepared. I feel like I have to dig into like that. <laughs> I've probably like fully, fully blocked out all of this. Um, oh gosh. We, I'm, t- I know I, ha- I'm telling you, I've like suppressed these memories. <laughs> oh, wait, you know what? I auditioned for The Wilds on Amazon and it was like my first or like my, no, it was my second ever audition in New York City. And I didn't know how like TV and film auditions worked. And so I like, like the I um I put on like a full face of makeup, like bright red lips, because I thought I was going um and for you know like a musical theater audition. And I walk in, and the lovely sweet casting director was like, "Can you please take off your lipstick? You're supposed to be on like an island, a deserted island. You're supposed to look bad." And I, needless to say, did not book, but that taught me, um, yeah, always do your research on what you're auditioning for. This was awesome, and hopefully the next time we meet, it'll be in person. I can't wait for it. I am so looking forward to that. That was Joe Ellen Pellman. The Prom is available on Netflix. I'm going to take a short break right now, but when we return, I'm talking to First Car star John Magaro. What do explorers, an army officer, and a Minnesota insurance salesman have in common? They all wanted to be the first to reach the North Pole, but only one of them made it. I'm Kat Long, science editor at Mental Floss and host of the new podcast, The Quest for the North Pole, which dives into the centuries-long race to explore the Arctic, Find the Northwest Passage and conquer the top of the world. With a cast of daring adventurers and some pretty determined amateurs, the race to the pole reveals the human desire to solve mysteries of geography and the soul. We'll look at the important Arctic expeditions that filled the blank spaces on the map and recognize how indigenous people made them successful. We'll examine what pushed explorers to venture ever farther into the unknown and uncharted and how the climate crisis is changing the Arctic today. Listen to The Quest for the North Pole every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. You've seen John Magaro in Orange is the New Black, as well as in Carol. He recently earned a Gotham Award nomination for his work in Kelly Reichardt's First Cow is Cookie, a chef in 1820s Oregon for a group of fur catchers who forms an unexpected friendship with King Lu, a Chinese immigrant played by Orion Lee. Magaro, 37, will also be seen in the upcoming Sopranos prequel movie, The Many Saints of Newark. While it hasn't been confirmed, it looks and sounds like Magaro is playing the young version of Stevie Van Sant's character, Silvio Dante. Hey, John. Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) we're living in quarantine time, so much like hiking on the Oregon Trail, there's not much reason to shave or cut your hair. I'm, I'm well, you know, things are better this week as opposed to how they were a few weeks ago. So it's great to sit down and talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is it well, there's an innocence to it. So right. in a way, maybe. I'm like, is well, it, is I'm, it- but it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, you'd think, yeah, cause it was first cow when I got it. And, and you'd imagine if, if less trusting people were involved, they would have been like, you got to change that title, but <laughs> they let her stick with it. So tell me about sitting down and reading the script for the first time. What, what was your initial reaction? Well, Kelly, I mean, Kelly and John Raymond have an amazing way of writing, uh, and everything was really clear on the first read. I mean, when I got to the end, I was just blown away. And I mean, it, it left me emotional and it left me, you know, thinking about it for days. Um, and I'd already been a fan of her work. So it was really exciting to get my hands on the script and to get a chance to read it. Um, and I, I knew right away I wanted to be a part of it. They just have a, a way of really painting a beautiful picture. It's really clear on the pl- page. You can, you can already see or sort of form an idea of how it's going to be. And because it's so clear, not much changed when we were doing it. You know, you can really trust that script. Um, yeah, it was just beautiful. When people ask you what First Cow is about, what do you say? You know, it's 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 hard to describe because, you know, you could get esoteric and get start talking about the themes and you're like, this is the kernel of capitalism. This is, you know, with queer undertones, with these things, with that thing. But I think it's best described as a story of friendship. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, you explain that it's a, a Western, that it's about people heading out to Oregon before Oregon was Oregon and uh, finding themselves there through tough circumstances. And uh, they happens to be a baker and they happen to start a business uh, baking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, hard, it's a hard one to describe. I, I kind of just say you got to go see it, you know, because uh, it's really it's it's a difficult because even saying that, you know, for 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 modern audiences, that's sort of like, what? well, uh, maybe that's a pass for me. Uh, no explosions. There's no superheroes in this. Wait a second. Um, and tell us about Cookie. What 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 did you like about Cookie? What what resonated with you? I mean, the initial thing that resonated with me about Cookie is that he's this outsider who is just looking for some sort of connection. I mean, um, 
I, I, you know, this is speaking generally, but I'm, I feel like most people have gone through that to varying degrees in their lives mm-hmm. of being an outcast in some sort of way uh, and feeling alone and alienated. Uh, and if we're lucky enough, we can find someone to sort of help us through that or, or, or find a connection with. Um, so that that was an initial thing that caught me. I also love his silence, his how introspective and, and he is, and how he takes things in, and and is is really careful careful with with his words and what he says. He 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 chooses them deliberately, and he has an economy with the way he speaks. I, I found that really interesting. You don't get to see that much in um, characters on film or in theater. Uh, often. Um, so that was really exciting to get to, to play. Um, but also just his innocence, you know, playing, especially in a Western, to play kind of this antithetical Western hero who is not this gruff, rugged, masculine archetype, just but to this innocent, pure character who, I mean, yes, they still steal milk, which is, I guess, his, his his little bad boy element, but that's it, you know, otherwise he's just so pure and throughout the entire thing, he he stays pure. And let's talk about the economy of the script, because do you find that is, I don't know if easier or harder is the right words, but when you don't have that dialogue, you're going to have to say a lot through your face. And then in this movie, your face is very covered, you know, (laughs) besides the beard and the costuming and the wardrobe, how how did you know that you were, I guess, saying the right thing with your face? Well, I mean, it's a, it's hard. The answer to that is it is more difficult. Um, it's easy to l- rely on words or, or feel like, oh, I have the words to do that. Um, and King Lou, you know, he does most of the talking in this. King uh, Cookie is, is listening. Um, so it's scary and it's a daunting task, but it was really exciting to be able to to, to have that challenge, you don't get that a lot. So yeah, you're scared, but you, you go you go in and, and you, you give it your best. I think I, I felt a, a sense of uh, confidence going in because I think a, bit, a big part of why Kelly cast me was she says my eyes, I have these kind of sad eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, the beard and the hat and everything, you know, it, all you really have are the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's scary. You could uh, go into it and try and do a lot more and have crazy eyes or whatever. But uh, I think any good actor, the way you're going to do it is you're going to listen and you're going to feel those thoughts and you're going to feel feel what's happening around you. And, you know, if, you, if you're willing to trust your director and your script and yourself as an actor, then you, you have to you have to believe that that's going to show up at the end. And fortunately, it did. Um uh, but again, that goes back to Kelly being able to trust her and being able to just let you know the language and the, and the story tell itself. So let's talk about that queer under uh, sort of undertone that yeah. you were talking about. Because I will tell you, my husband said to me within I don't know a few minutes of you guys meeting, is, are they gay? Like, <laughs> right away. <laughs> yeah, that's sort, that's sort of the the chestnut that's still yet to be cracked, and I, you know I don't think Kelly wants to talk about it much, and I understand why because that's it's not that's not what's important about the story. Um, uh, I have my thoughts on it. I, I believe Orion has his thoughts on it. We again we never discussed it, um, 
But I, I, I've said it and I, I'll keep saying it. I do think this is, whether you want to call it a queer film or a queer adjacent film, I think that there is something there. Um, as, I mean, I, at least from Cookie's end, I felt that. Um, I mean, he, he loves King Lou. It's a deep love. They're not, they're beyond friends. They're soulmates. They are, have, a, have a divine connection to each other that, uh, you know, has, has, made itself, you know, manifest through crossing an ocean and crossing a continent and finding each other in this muck and grime. Uh, and they, they somehow, you know, see the spark within each other and create a home together and create a life together. Um, it's a really beautiful thing that that can exist even in this desolate, dead environment. Does it say something about I guess our, or in general, our views on masculinity and men that you see a movie, two men have this deep relationship and automatically we have to say, well, they must be gay. Well, I, I don't, I mean, hmm, I, I don't know. That's that's interesting to, to say that. I mean, I, what we can go to is something like, you could go to like a Brokeback Mountain where you have a Western and then they're very gruff cowboys. And, right. and that's a very clear, you know, gay movie, but you know, it's clearly defined. Um, the softness of, of, of cookie. I don't think that's because of anything about his sexuality or anything like that. I think the softness is just his soul. I mean, there's plenty of, uh, straight by trans you know, go across the board where they can be <laughs> ultra aggressive or all, all, uh, super gentle spirited. Um, I mean, I think King Lou offers that. He's a little more tough. He's a little more uh, masculine in the sense of, of being an entrepreneur and, 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 you know, taking on that sort of traditional masculine role. Um, uh, Cookie just happens to be a more gentle soul. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, I, maybe that says something about ourselves. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But, but these, they, they exist. It, it exists on, on all, on all levels. So, but also his name, you know, is Cookie. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that's, listen, I, I, I'm as gay as the old you. Jewish lady's <laughs> name. My, uh, my, my auntie cookie. Right. But I'm as gay and Jewish as you could be, but the name cookie, you know, in different times, a man named cookie might be a drag queen. Well, <laughs> that's true. Kind of, but the last name figure with, so you may, might have to change that. I don't know if RuPaul would let him get away with that. Um, but I mean, his name's Otis and we have Cookie cause he's the cook on the West. You know, I think they all kind of called him that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. so one of the things I get very, I get very into, especially movies like this is like, I just feel like you guys are so dirty and it has to be uncomfortable. How real was that grime under your nails? Oh, it's real. I mean, it's real. It's real. Uh, you know, we would go. They would. They would start it in makeup, putting on makeup dirt, and then I. You know, I, we're doing so so many tactile things with the dirt and with the picking and the foraging and all this stuff. And I would find myself on set because we're out in in this beautiful forest, this untouched uh, you know forest that hadn't been logged. Thank God, because so much of uh, the Northwest has been. And I'd find myself kind of digging through the dirt and, you know, playing with the plants and picking things. And um, so, yeah, it becomes it becomes very 
very real and you become very, very grimy and dirty. And especially in that fort where it was just pure mud, <laughs> rain and mud and, and disgusting. Um, so after about a week, you kind of give up on really giving yourself a good shower because you know you're just getting back in it the next day. So, you know, you you, you sort of give it you know, a try, but that's about it. So I have to tell you, Sopranos. Ah, uh, yeah. Total, opposite direction. Complete opposite direction. Not soft, not, not gentle, just aggressive masculinity, yeah. Oh, toxic masculinity. Toxic. So I grew up in Queens, uh, Howard Beach. Oh, oh my God! Wow. Yeah. So that's John Gotti. Country. A little bit of slice down at Howard Beach. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's John Gotti country. When yeah. The Sopranos first started. I could not watch it. It was so real. Yeah. That it freaked me the f out. Like Edie Falco. Mm. Every morsel and inch of her was so many mothers of people I went to school with. And you yeah. know, look at me, I'm not, I'm not a Sopranos type of guy. And it's just like, literally for the first two seasons, it took me like I had to sort of get the courage to do it because it really gave me just flashbacks to, I mean, I just didn't like growing up there. Um, and, it's, and it was just so real. So how do you walk on set to do a movie prequel for a show that is one of the greatest TV shows of all time? Uh, it's not easy. And especially if you're playing one of the people who existed in that world beforehand, it's even more difficult. You know, some people had the good fortune of being a new new character who we might have heard about in this series, but we hadn't seen. So they, they could come at it fresh. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's challenging. I really I love that show, you know, growing up. And like you said, so many people I knew, you know, existed in that series. You, you'd see them and be like, oh, that's like this, you know, that's, that's, a little, that's like Uncle, that's like Uncle Joe over there. That's like it's weird. Um, but I think that's a testament to David and the way he, he wrote it uh, with with all the other writers as well and the way he cast it. I mean, so many of those people kind of are those people. Um, uh, so, so it creates this world and, you know, David really cares about honesty. Um, I think that's why when he approached the Sopranos, he told it in that way and didn't try and make it as melodramatic as something like you know, the Godfather or, or over the top in any way. Um, not that the Godfather's over, it's beautiful, but it's just in a different, you know, we, we all know. Um, so, I, I also was lucky that, you know, David and I had worked together before. We did a movie called Not Fade Away, and I worked with Jim Gandolfini on that. So not not mafia, but, you know, we're in Jersey, we're in the 60s, a lot of similar kind of people, just not killing other people. Um, so I, we had a shorthand with Dave, me and David, and, um, you know, as this was approaching, I really wanted to be a part of it and I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And then when I found out kind of what I was going to, going to audition for, it became even more scary because I, I know that person as well, personally. Um, mm -hmm. So it was scary. Um, I did my best to 
not do just like an SNL imitation, right, that's but what's give tough, him, yeah, which was the challenge, but yeah. to give him life and, and acknowledge that he's about 20 years younger at that time. Um, and, and, and just kind of dive in. Um, it is, it's scary. It's, it's really scary, but the writing is, is really great. And, and the, um, other, the other actors were fantastic to work with and everyone was really committed. And maybe there was something about the challenge of stepping into this iconic world where you feel like, I don't want to fuck this up. So you really take it seriously. And I think uh, throughout the set in all departments of that, that film, everyone was really doing their best to, to, to do, um, you know, homage and respect to the series that so many people love so dearly. And hopefully that translates uh, when people see it. So I know you're not allowed to say who you play, um, but have you spent a lot of time with Stevie Van Zandt? <laughs> I know you know him from before. He's <laughs> an interesting, you know, the way he played that's interesting. So not not confirming nor denying, but we'll we'll see how it comes off. But I, I will say that there are little uh, Easter eggs and treats that all the young versions of the older characters bring to the to the to the new new version. So did David do anything before shooting started? Obviously, you know, it's a great television show, but acknowledging obviously that James Gandolfini is no longer with us. Was there some sort of moment or sort of like, because it's, you know, he was the sh he was the show. Yeah. So how do you how did he acknowledge it? Because you can't just go on to that set and sort of not, I would assume. Yeah, well, I mean, that, you know, that was never acknowledged. I think the closest you're going to find to that is the fact that Michael Gandolfini is playing a young version of Jim's character. Um, and, and uh, you know, that that wasn't just because he's Jim's son or anything like that. He 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 won that part and he, he earned it. Um, David and I, we, we would have dinner a lot. And I remember as it was coming together, that, you know, that was one of the first roles that they had to cast because it's so important to find, you got to find that character. Otherwise you don't have a movie and it has to be a young person who can really pull it off. So I remember early on, we were having dinner and he goes, I think I found the young Tony. And, um, I, you know, great. Who, who is it? And he goes, you're not going to believe this. Uh, I think it's going to be Michael Gandolfini. And I said, no way. And he's like, he came in, he auditioned and it's, it's scary how similar, you know, not just the look, but just his mannerisms. And also he's a fantastic actor. You know, he, he was on the deuce. He's been doing more and more. He's up and coming, but I will say working with him personally, he, he just knocks it out of the park. He's so fantastic and spot on. So I think having him involved, uh, made everyone sort of aware of, of what was going on and how important it was. And, um, you know, the, Michael hadn't ever watched the show. This was right before it was his first time watching it. And I can't imagine how difficult that was. But, uh, you know, he's he is a, a young man with a sturdy head on his shoulders and a, a supreme amount of talent um, involved. Um, and then to add to that, you know, there's a thing that David likes to do, and, and I guess they did it on The Sopranos, is just get together, have dinners together, kind of become a family. It's very familial. Um, 
And we did that before we started shooting. You know, a lot of us would have dinners. We got together at restaurants and got to know each other. And it just makes for a more comfortable atmosphere on set. And, uh, you know, it's nice. Do you think that The Sopranos prequel movie could be turned into a series? Well, um, uh, you know, it's so weird now with the way things are. Um, because especially this was intended to be on the big screen in right. theaters. And obviously that has changed now. And although our, our date has now again been pushed, I think until September, it will come out, I, I believe on HBO Max at the same time. Yeah. So, so that the worlds are sort of just like fusing together more and more and quicker. And, you know, it's just happening so quickly. Um, could it be a series? I mean, I guess it seems like anything, anything can be a series. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I doubt David would want to do that. And if it did, I don't think he would really be involved much. Um, I don't think he's any intention of doing, a, starting another writer's room and like going through that again. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It would be nice. It would be nice if, if whether, you know, what would be better is if it did like, you know, my like a godfather arc like three movies and you get to see where tony ends up you know yeah. uh but but who who knows that's on warner brothers and new mind <laughs> and hbo they can figure that out now fun question for you what's the worst audition you ever went on oh goodness gracious <laughs> um i'm gonna leave names out of this to spare the guilty but um <laughs> i was auditioning for a movie for a, a, a an older director uh, who had done a, quite a bit of stuff. And I had auditioned for, for him before and I didn't get the job. And uh, I was calling him for his next movie. And I went in and I was next in line to go in. And in, in New York, the audition rooms, for the most part, you know, it's in like a hole in the wall apartment. And like the room that you're auditioning is next to uh, like a, a, a broom closet. And you're sitting in the broom closet. And you can hear the person auditioning ahead of you. And it's just terrible, terrible. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting outside waiting to go in, going over. And it wasn't even a big part, like four lines. I'm like, you know, obsessively going over it. And uh the person before me comes out and the door is open and I hear the casting director go, Oh, okay. And next is John Magaro. And he goes, Oh, not him. I don't want to see him. I'm like, I'm not going to cast him. And I'm like, I'm just devastated. Obviously devastated. Like, it's just like all the blood sucks out of you. And what are you going to do? And then she comes out and she goes, okay, John, we're ready to see you. Then I had to go in I totally was terrible, obviously, because all I'm thinking about is if I was a braver man, I would, you know, sound off and really give him a piece of my mind. Um, but I didn't. And like a real wimp, I just bit my tongue and and gave a terrible audition and never got the job. And and uh, and that was just devastating. Did you ever see that casting person again? I saw that. I, I still see the casting person. I, I've never seen the director. I never saw the director again. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. Oh, Thank you. Stay safe. Take care. And hopefully next time I see you. We'll be in Howard Beach. We'll grab a slice. That was John Magara. That's it for this episode of The Big Ticket. The Big Ticket is coming back next week as Just for Variety. I'll continue bringing you celebrity interviews plus more from my column, Just for Variety, and from the pages of the magazine.
For now, thanks for listening. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. Until next time, stay safe and be well. And please, please keep wearing your masks. Bye.